Welcome to History 605, the South Dakota State Historical Society's podcast, where we talk to historians, curators, filmmakers, artists, and authors about how they interpret the past. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian and Director of the State Historical Society. Join me and our guests as we think historical. So it is most appropriate and fitting that in our first year of our second century that this should also be a year of reconciliation between the Indian people and the non-Indian people alike. History 605 is sponsored by the Groover Family Trust and done in partnership with South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Welcome to the show. Welcome to History 605. Today, we have a, a great conversation on tap with Roger Grant. Roger is the Catherine and Calhoun Lemon Professor of History at Clemson University. He earned his PhD at the University of Missouri. Prior to teaching at Clemson, he taught at the University of Akron. He specializes in U.S. history and particularly the populist progressive era, and then within that, he's recognized as one of the world's leading authorities on transportation history and American railroads. He is the author of over 30 books and a noted national expert on railroads in America, and what caught my eye was the book Railroads in the American People. Hello, Roger, and thanks for being a guest on History 605. Yes, thank you, Ben. Your books have focused on American life and how railroads have impacted American society. I wonder if you can share a bit with us about how you got fascinated with railroads and what were the aspects of things that people typically find compelling uh, about railroads. You know, you, you, there are railroad museums in South Dakota. A lot, a lot of communities have railroad museums. It's just a kind of a, a major part of American culture and I'm wondering if you can comment on how you got interested in it, and then what do you think continues to draw people's interest to railroads? Well, it's an easy question to answer. My earliest memories deal with watching trains in my hometown, which was a small county seat community in southern Iowa. And later, when I was in graduate school, I began to show an interest in railroads professionally, but after uh, several books, one of which uh, dealt with life and fire insurance reform during the populist progressive era, I uh, literally came out of the closet and decided this is what I was going to uh, be working on, hopefully for the rest of my academic career. And uh, my first major book was on a Midwestern Railroad, the Chicago Great Western, and the university press that uh, published it uh, was amazed at sales, and it turned out to be one of their bestsellers, and small university presses uh, need bestsellers. So um, I continued uh, to uh, work on uh, railroads, and uh, all aspects uh, fascinate me, and I think that's one reason uh, people are drawn to uh, railroad museums. I think it goes back to childhood, in fact. Uh, small children, if we look at public television, like things that are big, you know, dinosaurs and locomotives. And uh, the fact that uh, it involves movement and peoples and large pieces of technology, uh, my goodness, uh, when you uh, talk about uh, aspects of uh, the physical as well as the social aspects of railroading, uh, it's it's wonderful, and uh, I think people of all ages uh, find it interesting. Now, some people sort of uh, go off the rails and become what we call foamers, uh, uh, becoming uh, advanced rail fans. Uh, and uh, there's nothing wrong with that, uh, Not like, unlike uh, spotters uh, in uh, England, mm -hmm. the train spotters. Train spotters but, right. uh, yes, uh, the point is that uh, the Museums uh, of all types, uh, whether it's a barbed wire museum or a museum on the development of the potato, uh, you know, there, there's going to be an audience. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was going to ask you, too, and maybe this is a good spot to get into it or not, but uh, other nations, and you mentioned Britain, 
the train spotters and so forth in that uh, movie, which is probably 20 years old now at some point. But uh, other other nations have their own kind of subcultures of, of railroad-interested fans and uh, fascination and so forth. Uh, I don't know of... Well, when I think of the Industrial Revolution, uh, nothing comes quicker to mind than railroads and all of the things that are needed by the the steel, the factories, the smoke, the coal, the just the energy, everything just pours into it. It's all kind of combined into telling the story of railroads in some way, shape, or form. Um, do, can you... Yeah, uh, I agree. And uh, it's interesting to see that... Uh, some uh, nations have been uh, better at preserving their railroad uh, heritage. Uh, Great Britain uh, is the outstanding example. Uh, during uh, scrap drives during World War II, they didn't uh, decide that uh, they were going to take their historic locomotives and turn them into uh, missiles or bullets or whatever it might be. Uh, where in the United States, uh, we had some scrap drives that uh, destroyed some of our great historic uh, artifacts. Uh, one museum uh, associated with Chicago Northwestern, the Omaha Railroad uh, uh, Museum uh, or collection in uh, St. Paul, was uh, essentially donated uh, for um, the cause. Now, obviously, mm. World War II was an important part of uh, the American experience, but uh, gosh, uh, I'm not sure that an old brass-plated uh, uh, iron uh, locomotive uh, did much for the war effort. Right, right. Well, um, shifting gears a little bit, I wonder, how does a railroad get going? And um, whether it's uh, it seems to be brought about by a, what today we might call a public-private partnership, how does the federal government and a private entity like a a railroad company gets set up and get going, and what are all the complexities of of the politics and the economics of that? I wonder. That's a major question. Yes. Well, the federal government did get involved uh, early on. Uh, we had the General Survey Act of 1824. Now, that's before the debut of uh, the Baltimore and Ohio and the South Carolina Canal and Railroad Company. But the point was that we were getting West Point graduates involved uh, with the survey work and uh, the engineering uh, of canals and public roads. But then with the uh, dawn of uh, the railway age, uh, we find uh, that this will continue uh, uh, with um, with railroads. Baltimore and Ohio benefited by this piece of legislation, although it was uh, essentially uh, eliminated uh, by the end of the 1830s. But what I think is probably more significant, well, one would be uh, the uh, survey for a transcontinental railroad that the government uh, undertook uh, by um, the Corps of Engineers. Um, we had uh, a number of uh, transcontinental uh, possibilities, northern, central, southern, but because of uh, sectional tensions uh, during uh, the 1850s, uh, nothing happened. But then uh, when uh, we find uh, the uh, federal government uh, um, controlled by uh, the north, uh, we see that uh, this is when we get uh, the uh, first uh, transcontinental act, the Pacific uh, Railway Act of 1862. So uh, the federal government has been involved, but the federal government also got involved uh, uh, with you know, all sorts of land grants. Um, in fact, it predates the Civil War. We had a land grant uh, in 1850 to the Illinois Central Mobile in Ohio, and uh, these land grants uh, continued until uh, the early 1870s. Why did they stop? Two reasons. There was a major uh, scandal with the uh, uh, construction of the Union Pacific. And uh, second, uh, it seemed that the private sector could uh, pick up the tab. So the hmm. federal government then is going to turn its attention to regulation. We have uh, the famous Interstate Commerce Commission Act of uh, 1887 and then some uh, horrendous uh, control measures during the progressive era, 1906 and 1910. But what I'm, I'm saying is that it's mostly the private uh, sector that's doing it. Now, we did depend heavily on money from uh, London, uh, from Amsterdam 
to a degree from Paris and Frankfurt because uh, we just did not have enough capital to build railroads. Uh, the Dutch, for example, did uh, a great job in uh, developing railroads uh, in, uh, in the Midwest, for example. But uh, in time, there is enough investment capital, and that's what we see going into uh, the construction of railroads. But we do find occasionally states participating. Michigan, uh, uh, early on, uh, was involved in helping to finance uh, the Michigan uh, Central Railroad. And then we start to see money coming from counties and townships and as well as just private investors. I, I've just uh, completed a manuscript, uh, which I call Sunset Cluster, which deals with uh, five short lines that were built in uh, western Iowa between 1907 and 1913. And uh, here we see uh, townships uh, having what they called often was a 5% tax that uh, bought uh, either the stock or the bonds of the projected uh, company. Hmm. Uh, occasionally, uh, uh, a town would do the same. Uh, this was not unheard of, but it's mostly through uh, private stock subscriptions, or uh, we find that people are so hungry for railroads that they will donate land uh, for the right-of-way, or they will exchange stock in the company uh, for that uh, usually 100-foot-wide uh, strip of land. So I think we could say that once our Industrial Revolution really gets going, it's not uh, public monies as much as it is private monies. And, uh, you know, railroads were the gold standard of uh, the stock and bond market. You know, this, there were certain companies uh, mm -hmm. where you would feel safe putting the assets of widows and orphans into uh, railroad uh, securities. Okay. So, yeah. Uh, and also, the United States is virtually unique in that it is not going to be the government that eventually owns and operates the railroads. Uh, the exceptions would be in Canada and Brazil, for example. But now we do have Amtrak and we had Conrail, but that's when the, the railroad industry had some uh, major challenges uh, in the 1960s and 70s. Yeah. You you mentioned some of the changes that were, that occurred in the 1870s and so forth around corruption, and we, you often hear the term robber baron as some kind of um, corrupt private businessman who is um, abusing his, his uh, wealth and authority by uh, all of this. But then, as you say, these little towns, to get connected to markets, uh, definitely wanted the railroad to come through their town. So this kind of sets up this paradox of being wanted but being hated or at least mistrusted all along. How, how has that impacted American well, politics, and what do you, what, what's true or not true about that? Well, I think the Robert Barron story is indeed a myth, uh, but it's one the public uh, easily accepts. You know, we talk about uh, good guys and bad guys, cops and robbers, etc. Yeah. But if you just look at the South Dakota story, that the two principal railroads in the state were the Milwaukee and the Northwestern, Chicago, Milwaukee and St. Paul, Chicago and Northwestern, and uh, both of their leaders, their presidents during the great Dakota boom, when most of the construction or a lot of the construction occurred, uh, were uh, builders and not wreckers. They were thinking about the long term. Mm -hmm. So if you look at Alexander Mitchell, uh, who is uh, the president of the Milwaukee, and at that time it was called the St. Paul, but later became the Milwaukee Road uh, in public um, uh, terminology, was uh, you know, expecting uh, the uh, development of uh, eastern uh, uh, Dakota Territory. Uh, he uh, left the presidency, died uh, two years before statehood. But they were thinking about the long term. They wanted to develop the area. Mitchell and his associates uh, at the Milwaukee had that uh, as their agenda. And certainly uh, Marvin Hewitt, who was the uh, longtime president of the Northwestern, was uh, – anxious uh, to uh, have success in uh, 
a long-term investment. He wanted uh, the farmers, most of all, who are really, if they're going to become involved in commercial agriculture, have to have railroad transportation. Mm -hmm. And so uh, he uh, was doing all that he could to promote agriculture uh, in Dakota. And one of his ideas, which was also shared by James J. Hill, the empire builder of the Great Northern, was to have a dual-purpose cows that could be used for both meat and milk. And also, Hewitt was a great proponent of alfalfa, and he wanted agricultural diversification. He realized dependence on wheat could be iffy. It's great if prices like they were in 1880, a dollar a bushel, but they slipped at the end of the decade to maybe 15 to 20 cents a bushel. Uh, He uh, thought that farmers uh, should, uh, you know, raise other crops and Livestock, uh, he thought, was uh, an important avenue for uh, long-term prosperity. When I talk about uh, robber barons to students in my history of American transportation, yeah, uh, there were a few rotten apples. And uh, recently I did a history uh, of the uh, Rock Island Railroad. uh, And uh, in 1901, this conservatively managed company uh, fell into the hands of the Reed Moore Syndicate, and uh, by uh, 1915, they had looted it and threw it into bankruptcy. But both the Milwaukee and the Northwestern in Dakota and South Dakota uh, were uh, conservatively managed. Uh, They were thinking about a public interest. Now, it's true, the uh, two railroads, and joined by others in the state, uh, did uh, lobby and peer for uh, more favorable uh, legislation or to prevent legislation, uh, particularly when it came uh, uh, to rates and uh, and taxation. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, they were good corporate citizens. In other words, uh, you know, if their uh, service territory prospered, they would prosper, and they Generally, we're thinking in terms of, uh, you know, you know, generations yet unborn, that the, the railroad would be for here forever and ever, and mm-hmm. you wanted it profitable for your shareholders and your bondholders. And uh, also, uh, you know, there was a sense of uh, public responsibility. Uh, they weren't really guilty, uh, mostly, of acts of corporate arrogance. You know, there were some problems, but uh, in all industries, uh, there are problems. But uh, I uh, find it really annoying that uh, the public still accepts uh, the uh, robber baron notion. In fact, the most hated man in America in the late 19th century, well, at least until he died in 1892, was Jay Gould. And uh, Maury Klein, uh, in his biography of Gould, points out that he was indeed much more of a builder rather than a wrecker, that he took uh, more or less impoverished railroads and made them into uh, viable systems, Hmm. like he did with the Wabash and the Missouri Pacific, for example. So this is one of my pet peeves. Uh, I'm an old guy, (laughs) and the older I get, uh, the crankier I become, and um, I... uh, really have uh, thought a lot about uh, robber barons. In fact, uh, as an aside, uh, uh, I uh, was the chief reader for AP U.S. History, uh, chief faculty consultant, as it was called. And uh, I was on the test development committee. And uh, one year I wrote a question about robber barons. And I asked uh, my uh, table leaders if they had any students who questioned, who challenged that. And about 200,000 students took this free choice question. And would you believe, actually, I was not super surprised, that there was no student in the United States, and actually abroad, because the test was administered outside the United States as well, that challenged it. Yeah. Uh, so what can I say? Yeah. Uh, talk about being ingrained. Yeah. But even the slowest student can uh, understand, uh, you know, bad guys got control of railroads. And therefore, that's why we had to have uh, regulatory measures uh, after, uh, well, really during the 1870s and later. So yeah. there you are. Yeah. Well, it sets off uh uh, those things that you, uh, I guess you use the euphemism regulatory measures to 
to so then government starts or switches from figuring out ways to charter to develop land to do that to then say okay now that you're on your own and you're ec economically viable uh how do we respond to the politics of rate setting and and farmers who are struggling to get their wheat to market and things like that well there were there were problems it's like any business you can't have total uh uh, freedom of action on the part of a corporation. You've got to make sure there are protections. But uh, my feeling is that uh, the government uh, went overboard during the progressive era. And we do have, as Albert Martin has argued, enterprise denied. And that the smart money after World War One certainly wasn't going into railroads, in part because of uh, overregulation and the fact that uh, labor had been given uh, a great deal of power that uh, perhaps was needed in some cases, but uh, in some places, too, it was exploited. And we can see that later on uh, when we have that whole issue of feather bedding uh, with uh, you know, firemen on diesels and uh, station agents, telegraphers, uh, yeah. that... Uh, you know, are only working uh, a few hours a day in these small country stations because of of, of changing uh, economic uh, patterns and uh, transportation uh, needs, et cetera. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, it's a complicated story. Uh, yeah. But uh, I would say railroads generally were good citizens. Uh, you know, the fact that so many towns and counties are named after railroad-related people, and, and certainly the president, you know, like uh, Alexander Mitchell, the town of Alexandria, South Dakota, is named after his daughter. You know, they have their name imprinted on their service territory. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there is that, you know, there is a kind of strong personal relationship. But, you know, they're not out to uh, destroy uh the shippers uh, uh, or those people who are receiving uh, goods. Uh, yeah. I think they were generally good citizens. Yeah. So they are. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you write in a forthcoming uh, chapter that's going to be published by the Center for Western Studies uh, about South Dakota railroads. And I'm wondering if you could kind of take us through how, uh, compared to North Dakota or the northern part of the territory, which Dakota territory was at the time, um, they get the uh, transcontinental line first in what becomes North Dakota. I wonder if you could just give some background about the the topography, the route laying, and the politics of why that route was chosen and why South Dakota kind of gets gets in the game a little late. Poor South Dakota. Yeah, it is a victim <laughs> of geography. Well, talk about the northern transcontinental, the northern Pacific and the great northern. The northern Pacific did get a major land grant, and it started in Duluth and went west and uh, had a difficult time uh, reaching uh, deep water. Uh, but uh, in the 1880s, uh, finally, uh, it became a through route to the Pacific Northwest. So that explains the northern Pacific. The Great Northern, uh, James J. Hill, decided uh, for a variety of reasons to uh, parallel it and created a better engineered railroad. And he inherited a land grant, but most of it uh, did not come uh, from uh, federal lands uh, supporting it. Okay, so that you have the Northern Transcontinental, Minnesota, uh, North Dakota, Montana, Idaho, mm -hmm. Washington. Okay. Then we talk about the first transcontinental, the Union Pacific, Central Pacific. Right. And uh, Abraham Lincoln decided that milepost zero was going to be in Council Bluffs, Iowa. And that made sense because you had railroads being built towards uh, Council Bluffs. In fact, uh, the Northwestern got there in 1867, and the uh, Rock Island and the Burlington got there three years later. All right. So. What do you do when you get the Council of Bluffs? Well, you try to figure out you got to use a ferry to get across to Omaha. Eventually, you'll bridge uh, uh, the Big Muddy. But then you go west. You don't go through South Dakota. Mm -hmm. You go through Nebraska and Wyoming, etc. So uh, South Dakota is just, as I just said, a victim of geography, of location. Now, it is true 
that the Milwaukee, when it was building uh, west into Dakota Territory, did do survey work uh, beyond uh, uh, Chamberlain, uh, uh, but they ran into problems uh, with Native Americans, with the reservations as they were developing. And uh, the Black Hills uh, uh, could be reached through Nebraska, and that's what happened in 1887 right. uh, with the Fremont, Elkhorn, and Missouri Valley. And uh, the Northwestern, uh, they never thought of uh, extending, yes, to the Black Hills, which they did beginning in 1904 and got there in 1907. But what the Northwestern did was to use uh, the Fremont, Elkhorn, and Missouri Valley, the one that got to the Black Hills in 1887, and push that uh, into uh, Wyoming and then... uh, Early in the 20th century, they did a survey uh, going west to Oregon, to the coast there. And uh, all they ever built, uh, well, it's quite a bit, uh, was to uh, Lander, Wyoming, which was 1,205 miles west of Chicago, and that's where they stalled. Now, South Dakota, good old South Dakota, I still think of it as the Sunshine State, not the Mount Rushmore State, but, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm old. Uh, <laughs> you do get the Milwaukee Road, but it right. just slices through a part of South Dakota. You know, Millbank, uh, Aberdeen, uh, yeah. Mobridge, Missouri Bridge, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Lemon, and then uh, goes off uh, uh, to uh, Miles City, uh, uh, Montana, and then eventually uh, to the west. But that doesn't open until May of 1909. So, much of South Dakota, including the largest city, you know, Sioux Falls, the biggest city by 1890, uh, you know, they're stuck at the end of uh, extensions. And, uh, you know, it's it's just unfortunate. Um, you know, there was an article not too long ago uh, in the Sioux Falls newspaper about, you know, well, South Dakota is not going to get Amtrak. Well, South Dakota will never get Amtrak, mm-hmm. uh, at least uh, in our lifetimes, uh, because of that Milwaukee Transcontinental uh, uh, was severed in uh, 1980. The Milwaukee went bankrupt, and the state of South Dakota gets nervous and actually uh, buys over 800 miles of uh, threatened uh, Milwaukee uh, trackage. So, yeah, um, you know, it's, it's a problem of maybe the initial Indian barrier and reservation barrier mm-hmm. and the Black Hills, you're going to have to either, you know, you have to come from the do north some or the south. railroading uh, to get through it, right. but there are other avenues and they're, they're already open. So uh, right. this is, you know, if we had not invented uh, internal combustion vehicles, the automobile and the, and the truck, yeah, maybe we would have seen that. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh but, you know, that's sort of counterfactual history, uh, you know, what if. Right. What I tried s- to deal with the so what. <laughs> yeah, the so what's are a long enough list, I think. Um, yeah, exactly. One of those so what's is a lot of the scientific or engineering problems that have to be solved. What are some of the monumental, just in developing better, smoother, faster trains? What are some of the people and the things involved well, with that? Well, you know, part of it has to do with the... Uh, coming up uh, with um, better track. Uh, we went through that uh, evolution uh, from uh, strap rail where we had uh, a wrought iron nailed to uh, uh, wooden uh, stringers uh, uh, to iron rail to uh, U-rail, T-rail, which then became steel to a T-rail mm-hmm. uh, after the early 1870s. And we came up with uh, better types of um, of engineering uh, techniques, uh, better equipment, first of all, to uh, build the rights of way, uh, uh, steam powered shovels instead of uh, using uh, mules and horses and uh, uh, scrapers and plows, etc. Um, so, you know, it's uh, you look at the construction uh, techniques of, say, the Panama Canal, that. By the early 20th century, we had those big Bucyrus, Bucyrus area uh, steam uh, uh, operated uh, uh, shovels, and 
you know, the, the, the technology continues to improve. And also mm-hmm. we get uh, more powerful locomotives and uh, uh, the rolling stock uh, evolves from largely wooden uh, to uh, steel. Um, yeah, it's, and then, of course, we have dieselization uh, and uh, the streamliners that uh, made their debut in the 1930s and continued, certainly, uh, in the immediate post-World War II period. So, yeah, there are you know, a lot of advancements. And, uh, you know, now we're thinking of, uh, you know, high-speed uh, inner-city trains, which mm-hmm. we sort of have on the Northeast Corridor. But uh, in South Dakota, the, the real problems uh, – were not uh, that great. Uh, bridging uh, the Missouri River was was significant. Uh, both the Milwaukee and the uh, Northwestern and the Milwaukee, uh, yeah, the Milwaukee twice uh, had to uh, uh, do that. Uh, the M and St. L, when they were thinking about building the West River Country, stalled at a place called Lebeau, which is a ghost town uh, mm-hmm. today. It's probably underwater. Uh, and, uh, you know, that was important. And also out in the Black Hills, we do see uh, some narrow-gauge railroads that are being built, but not a great uh, mileage, uh, really uh, an insignificant mileage. Um, so, uh, you know, you've got prairie land, and you've got cuts and fills, uh, mm-hmm. And uh, when you got uh, west of uh, the Missouri River, uh, you have, um, you know, rougher terrain. And, in fact, uh, the Northwestern, uh, the subsidiary company, most railroads used uh, uh, companies that they controlled uh, when they initially built. So you have the uh, Pier Rapid City and Northwestern. And I always loved what locals uh, referred to it as uh, – uh, pretty rough country and no water, which sort of explains <laughs> why the West River country uh, was kind of slow in developing. Yeah. Uh, for There are other reasons, too. But, you know, going through the Badlands, if uh, uh, <laughs> you know the place better than I, but back in the late uh, 1980s, I rode on a freight train on the uh, uh, Dakota, Minnesota, and Eastern from oh, yeah. Rapid City to uh, Pier, mm-hmm. and we had to triple the uh, wall of uh, hill three times, well, three times tripling it. So uh, I hadn't been to Wall, South Dakota before, but I had made three visits to uh, Wall as a result of, of taking a relatively long train and uh, dealing with a rather steep grade, even though that was built at a time when you had uh, it what we would consider to be advanced uh, construction techniques, at least uh, compared to uh, when uh, so many miles uh, were uh, installed during uh, the Great Dakota boom. So, you know, South Dakota, like my native state of Iowa, it's not flat as a floor. And, uh, you know, that would be the challenge. But it's not like building a railroad uh, uh, through the Front Range of the Rockies, for example. uh, Or uh... even here... uh, in uh, South uh, Carolina, where you've got uh, part of the uh, Appalachian escarpment uh, to deal with. Yeah. You mentioned the Dakota boom, and it strikes me that uh, I grew up in DeSmet, and and uh, there's little towns every 8, 12 miles between the Minnesota line, or at least there were, between the Minnesota line and the Missouri River, um, and I was told as a boy that that was so the trains needed a station where they could get water. Uh, is there something to that? No, I don't. You know, yeah, they needed water, but uh, they got thirsty, the Iron Horse. Uh-huh. But it's really been uh, the result of what was called the uh, team hall uh, notion that you had, well, the towns that were laid out. Well, there are two reasons. One is that you wanted to be able to have farmers be able to come uh, to the uh, station uh, and go back home in a day. In other words, mm-hmm. you needed them closely spaced, but also the railroads need them for train control. And, uh, you know, this is single track. Uh, you're using telegraph for train control. And uh, it was thought that uh, you you're not moving very rapidly. You know, we talk about train speeds. Uh, Freight trains probably average maybe uh, 15 miles an hour. Passenger Mm -hmm. trains maybe 25 miles an hour. But for train control, 
you needed to have uh, telegraphers, station agents uh, uh, closely spaced. And uh, even if a town didn't develop around a station, and that's true in a few places uh, that I could think of, uh, uh, but you still need it for train control and also for that team hall uh, philosophy, which which made sense. Um, so, um, okay. yeah, South Dakota has a lot of towns. And yeah. then there were, you know, examples of uh, competition. Some towns were just too closely spaced. I think the poster child for that would be St. Lawrence and Miller in Hand County. Yeah. <laughs> there were two different town site companies that got involved in that. But okay. Often the town site company is owned by the railroad. Yes. Uh, railroad uh, insiders are investing. Other aspect I wanted to ask about that is the, the management of the train. So is it, as it as a locomotive, let's say, in the 1880s, is going down the track, how many people are on board and how does it take uh, to do that? And then as they add passenger cars and pullmans, which becomes this, uh, as you make a point in your article about uh, the dining cars and how fancy they're becoming and really upscale and so forth, they're adding porters and cooks and chefs and sous chefs and this whole um Really, high society is a, is an option on here. By the time you get to the 1930s, for riding on the on the rails, how many how many people might be employed, say, on a train that's going west, that's hauling grain, and how many in the 1880s, and then skip forward to the 1930s, how many people might be employed on a train? Well, <laughs> let me say, uh, in South Dakota, the the freight trains would be similar to other parts of the country, both in the 1880s and, say, uh, in the 1930s. Okay. In other words, you would have the engineer mm -hmm. and you would have the fireman and you would have a head brakeman. And then in the caboose, you would have the conductor who is legally in charge of the train, although the engineer always thought he was superior to the conductor because his job was was more skilled, uh, you would have a rear brakeman. So usually you had a five-person crew. Okay. Now, on a passenger train, uh, yes, you're going to have more employees. Uh, you're probably uh, going to uh, have a flagman uh, as well as a rear brakeman. You have a conductor, and then you have the same number of people in the cab, although you might not have a head brakeman. But when you had... Uh, uh, a dining car, and you had Pullman car. Uh, South Dakota really didn't have. I mean, yes, the Olympian uh, on the Milwaukee uh, was a deluxe train, and uh, if you were taking the Olympian from, uh, let's say, Aberdeen uh, to Chicago in uh, 1910, uh, you would find uh, in the uh, dining car uh, maybe as many as uh, three or four. Uh, individuals, maybe five, uh, and they had a Pullman and Pullman's uh, uh, cars. You would have the Pullman conductor who worked for the Pullman company. He was not a railroad employee. Oh, and then you would have uh, uh, the uh, porter who was likely an African-American, and this was generally considered in the African-American community as a plum job. Yeah. And uh, I often think that uh, how much talent was wasted. Uh, this was a tough job for a Pullman porter. Uh, uh, on uh, uh, you would have sleep deprivation. You yeah, know, the sure. train stopped in the middle of the night. You would get people coming on and off, and then you just uh, had uh, the basic um, racism. Uh, it was uh, common. Uh, not to call a Pullman porter, asking, you know, what is your name? Is it John? Is it uh, uh, Homer or whatever? It would be George. You know, George, pick up my grip. Uh, you know, George, wow. get me yeah. some water. Well, why is it George? It's because of George Pullman, okay. uh, the founder and the developer of uh, of the company, even though it had been dead since uh, about 1900. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you have... Um, you know, a lot more personnel, and uh, that's one reason uh, why uh, railroad companies uh, uh, were uh, getting into trouble uh, later on uh, uh, when you have competition uh, from the automobile and from uh, buses and uh, also uh, from airplanes. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, 
yeah, it, it is a labor-intensive uh, industry, uh, as well as being capital-intensive. And then you have uh, um, also uh, all the other uh, support facilities. You mentioned uh, taking on water. Well, there were water tanks, uh, not necessarily in every town or mm-hmm. every stop. Uh, and uh, uh, But, yes, they did dot the landscape, and you were uh, uh, going to find coaling stations uh, in division points, uh, so uh, it might be, uh, you know, they would take on coal, for example, uh, in Mitchell and the Milwaukee or uh, in Huron uh, on the mm-hmm. Northwestern or in Aberdeen, also in the Milwaukee. Uh, so, yes, um, you know, railroads, I'm repeating myself and historians do repeat themselves. <laughs> uh, history doesn't. But no. <laughs> uh, the point of the matter is that uh, it. There are just a lot of folks involved. And if you look at uh, the National Railroad Employment, let's say in 1920, mm-hmm. it was at least two and a half million. And today wow. it's somewhere over 100,000. So, okay. yes, there are so many people today that have had, you know, grandparents or great grandparents uh, somehow employed by the railroad they have had that railroad uh, experience if they did their family uh, genealogy right as far as the land boom goes and and town locations they were also kind of designing towns your your article mentions the town the t the t shape or if i got the term right but the the plaiting the towns yes yeah the t towns in order to kind of line up where the station would be where the depot would be and then where the main street would be there's an awful lot of south yeah, dakota towns that look just like that <laughs> yeah you might think there is no imagination that we're talking cookie cutter well right. let me just explain the t-town sure uh, the evolution uh, goes back uh, to a degree uh, to the canal era when canals uh, were being constructed uh, in new york and ohio and indiana for example and uh, the idea was somehow separate the, quote, industrial part uh, from the commercial and residential. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, as John Hudson, uh, a retired geographer from Northwestern University, uh, who really wrote a wonderful book uh, called, uh, uh, well, it was essentially about the the development of prairie, northern Great Plains uh, communities. He focused largely on North Dakota, but uh, it's true in South Dakota. So what you have, you have the railroad line. This is going to be uh, uh, the bar of the T, and the main business district will go from the depot, uh, let's say, to the south. Let's say the railroad line is to the north. And then on the other side of the tracks, you have the elevator row. In other words, the grain elevators, uh, lumber yards, maybe there's a creamery or some other business. Mm-hmm. But when you have wagon traffic, those farmers that are bringing in, let's say, their, their wheat uh, or maybe uh, bringing in uh, some other commodity uh, won't have to clutter the main drag of the community. Well, you mentioned DeSmet. Uh, that's a classic T-town. Yeah. So you have the commercial area, you know, the stores and other uh, businesses, the professional offices, etc., uh, on the south side of, of the depot. Mm-hmm. And when a person got off a train in DeSmet, you would go you would open up the, there were both, there were doors on both sides of the depot, don't get me wrong. But the point of the matter is that you're going to face not an elevator, you're going to face the commercial uh, area where hopefully there are a lot of live wires, you've got a lot of commercial activity. And then in these classic tea towns, uh, you would find that the courthouse is sort of, you know, not on a square or a circle like you would find, uh, let's say, in Iowa or Kentucky, but rather uh, you know, sort of over there. And then you have uh, uh, churches and the school, not necessarily on that main drag. 
The point is that when uh, railroads sold those lots, the town lot company, it might not be a railroad uh, mm-hmm. that is peddling uh, real estate, but you know, the, the choice lots are going to be by the tracks on that main street, on the uh, the, uh, the road that uh, goes uh, from uh, the cross section, the railroad uh, uh to the south or to the north, depending on the uh, community, or east or west, for that matter. Yeah. Uh, but then the, the the town site company might donate land, let's say, for a courthouse, uh, assuming uh, that uh, this place is going to be the county seat. And there were some nasty courthouse fights and throughout the country, at least in the trans-Chicago West or the trans-Missouri West. Um, but this just was practical. And, you know, and Americans put a premium on practicality, right? right. Uh, you know, an idea means what an idea does. And uh, this was a, a way of creating a, a, a workable and, uh, a, you know, again, a practical uh, a flow of traffic and business, et cetera, et cetera. It just made a lot of sense. Right. And, uh, um you know, there, there were variations, but, uh, boy, uh, at least uh, east of the Missouri River in um, um, South Dakota, you find a lot of T-towns. Right. You know, there are variations, but you even find state capitals. You look at Lincoln. Uh, you look at mm-hmm. Cheyenne. They're essentially T-towns. Okay, yes. In, in, your, in your book, Railroads and the American People, I, I noticed that uh, time zones are first used by railroads, and, and that's— uh, for the purposes of uh, railroad scheduling and so forth, uh, four time zones are developed for the railroads. And then over time, the government finally, well, I guess in the First World War, the government sets this up as a... as a Yeah, that's you know, right. Uh, we were using sun time uh, before uh, 1883, the day of the two moons, or two <laughs> noons, I should say. Yeah. Moons, noons. Uh, and, uh, you know, you... Travelers were really bewildered. You know, you go to a place like uh, Buffalo, and there were something like seven or eight different clocks on the wall for different times. You know, someone were running on New York time, uh-huh. uh, uh, Albany time, Buffalo time, Cleveland time, blah, blah time, etc. It was a mess. Yeah. And, uh, you know, railroads did a lot for standardization in American life, and uh, that's one of them. And actually, we were five time zones. There was an Atlantic time zone, but then things get changed over a while. But uh, the government, you're right, uh, during uh, uh, World War One, decided, uh, let's make this legal. And, you know, I think this is an issue that continues. You know, do we have permanent daylight savings right. time? Uh, I you think know, there's a bill. Permanent standard time. Right. Uh, Gosh, uh, I'm a morning riser, and I like to. Uh, I used to run. I like to walk early in the morning, and uh, I don't want the sun coming up in uh, Clemson, South Carolina, at uh, 8:30 in the morning, in uh, right. you know, in January. Right. Railroads have an interesting past, and they continue to have a future in some way, shape, or form. Just maybe more specialized and more. Uh, tailored for well i don't know i mean i i can't look into a crystal ball but what scares me about railroads futures is you know they have a fixed network and if we have uh um, driverless trucks very flexible um you know what's that going to do for railroads um, yeah if we have these autonomous uh trucks uh, but i think too uh, if they're using roads into a major city, they're going to have a lot of congestion. And right. we really can't widen interstates too much more. So, uh, yeah, uh, I don't really think that railroads are going to be stuck uh, hauling low uh, uh, revenue commodities uh, like, uh, you know, aggregate uh, or, uh, you know, chemicals, which mm-hmm. are actually pretty high rated, but you don't want chemicals going on uh, interstate highways. Uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, you know, we thought uh, at the beginning of the 20th century that the automobile was something, uh, it was just a, a plaything of the rich, and that uh, we didn't anticipate uh, Henry Ford and the Model right. B uh, right. that made its debut in 1908. You know, so who knows what's going to happen? Mm-hmm. But uh, I think railroads are trying to be adaptive. Uh, they're trying to uh, come up with uh, uh, different sources of power, uh, moving away from uh, 
diesel pollution to uh, liquefied natural gas, for example, or maybe we'll go back to the interurban era of the, uh, the first couple decades of the 20th century and, uh, you know, we'll use, uh, I don't know, hydroelectric power or uh, uh, maybe uh, wind or uh, solar yeah. power to uh, operate uh, trains. And actually, the Milwaukee Road had about 700 miles from their transcontinental railroad that were electrified. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it looked like a railroad in Switzerland. Uh, they had some <laughs> major bridges through uh, the uh, various uh, uh, mountain ranges and, uh, you know, tunnels, and uh, they were electrified. So, yeah, uh, yeah uh, maybe we'll go... Uh, back to the uh, past Perhaps. for the future. Well, Roger, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading more of your books, and uh, thank you for your time today. You're... I uh, really appreciate the opportunity to talk about my favorite subject. Uh, it's um, a complicated one, but yeah. uh, the fact that it deals with people is what really intrigues me. Right. Uh, I uh, like the idea that railroads involve people, uh, whether they're employees or travelers or shippers or whatever. And uh, I think that is probably going back to your original question about the, you know, the popularity of museums. Uh, You know, people like to think about, you know, how this affected people in the past and maybe today. So maybe they'll uh, go to, uh, you know, Madison uh, or uh, Hill City and (laughs) and think about uh, the past uh, of railroading and uh, enjoy it. Yeah. Well, Roger, thanks a lot for um, joining the conversation today and being on History 605. I do appreciate it. Okay. Take care. We'd like to thank Howard and Dorothy Groover for their passion for history and the support of the South Dakota State Historical Society. It's through gifts such as theirs that we're able to tell South Dakota's history. We'd like to thank our partner, South Dakota Public Broadcasting, and most importantly, we'd like to thank you for listening. Please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to find podcasts. We'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode of History 605.